We're in a little series called The Elements of Worship, which means we're just looking at the different aspects of our service, which are on your, on your program here. We started off looking at the Sarum prayer, a little background to that. We preached on a couple of uh, hymns that are, we use frequently here. Emily gave a great thing on communion. And today I want to talk about the talking part. So this is meta talk about sermon talk. Uh, what happens in the middle of the service. Um, I'll give you a little brief history of the sermon. That'll be exciting for you. Uh, and then I will offer some of my cogent, you know, observations from uh, being a purveyor and consumer of sermons for many years. I have some opinions. I'm going to voice them upon you. Um, so a brief history of the sermon as a, as a part of, of worship. Uh, this bit where someone talks uh, in the context of worship goes back 2,500, 2,600 years after Solomon's uh, temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. That's, you know, 2,600 years ago. People started meeting them. The Jewish people started moving, meeting in private homes rather than uh, going to the temple. The temple had been destroyed. That period was called the Babylonian exile, and that's the period in which the, what we know as the Hebrew Bible started to coalesce, come together, and where the people of God started using uh, sacred text in their worship. So there would be in, in synagogue worship, which developed about that time, there'd be a selection from the Torah, the, one of the first five books of Moses, uh, or there might be a reading from one of the prophets, and then an elder would make, um, you know, comments or remarks, sometimes about the text, sometimes not. Uh, Jesus was invited to do this in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4. He read from the prophet Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind and declare the year of the Lord's favor. That was his reading and then Luke records after the reading, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, this reflects the fact that uh, rabbis at that time normally sat uh, while they were teaching, so that's a little different. It's a little like a hip mega church pastor with a lip patch will sit on a stool on an eight foot high stage. And okay, I tried that a few times. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't me. Um, as, and so the, the the teacher would sit, and then Luke says he began to say to them, "Today this scripture is fulfilled." That's just a little signal that we're just getting the the introductory remarks that Jesus made. It's about all we have. From that, that was the beginning of a sermon. So the first churches were composed uh, mostly of Jewish members, and so the Christian worship was patterned naturally after the synagogue, often happened within the synagogue, incorporated into synagogue worship in various ways. Among the Gentile believers, as the gospel spread to the non-Jewish surrounding nations, uh, worship was patterned after, scholars think, the Roman semi-public dinner uh, format that was called the symposium. You know, in academic language, the symposium is a thing. Well, that goes back to the Roman Empire time when people would have these um, kind of semi-public dinners where they, they have a certain format to them. 
Uh, trade guilds would have their symposia, and civic groups would have their symposia, and wealthy uh, households would host a, a dinner like this and invite the neighbors. And so the first churches would often meet in the house of like a wealthy member, and they adopted this format for having worship. It was kind of cool at a symposium um, hosted by Jesus followers. They might be 30 or 60 or so around the table in a U-shape. Uh, first, this, uh, the food was served, always with bread. Once the people were well into the eating part, then the wine would come out. So that happened a little bit later. There would then be a pause in the action when the wine was being served. The host would stand up or maybe a special guest and offer in the Roman, you know, the pagan Roman uh, method. They would just offer a libation to the God with a blessing over the wine. They might pour out the wine as a kind of libation and then the guests would commence to drinking and in the normal Roman symposium there would be maybe a speaker who would stand up and offer remarks on events of the day or a reading from one of the poets or whatever and uh, there would be more drinking and in the, in the normal symposium there'd be entertainment, there'd be flute people coming out and playing the flute and as the evening wore on there'd of course be carousing um, that was a typical symposium. The Gentile Christians adapted this. Uh, and instead of offering, you can just imagine it, uh, instead of offering prayers to the local deity, they offered a blessing or a prayer in the name of Jesus. And, and that was kind of incorporated into what we now call the communion meal. And then it would be natural at that time to tell something about the story of Jesus or to remark on some of the distinctive teachings of Jesus. Then there'd be singing and, you know, generally speaking, minus the carousing part. I say generally speaking because there is evidence in the New Testament writings that the Gentile followers had to be reminded from time to time to cool it on the carousing part. Like in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. That the context of that is the symposium uh, to the party-loving Corinthians. Uh, it was a little bit more pointed. Paul said, uh, some, of you get, are, some of you are getting drunk at your love feast and just knock it off. So that's the little history. There you go. Uh, a little more interesting than perhaps you thought, um, I, I hope. So here's my thing one and thing two after being a purveyor and consumer of many ser sermons. Stuff I've always wanted to say but just never had the chance. When do you ever get a chance to give a sermon on the sermon? Uh, thing one, admittedly, it's just a pet peeve, but what the heck. Um, if you grew up in a conservative church background, you may resonate with what I'm about to say. Uh, in, in that context, often the idea of like a good Bible-based sermon is that it has to be like a line-by-line -line exposition of a biblical text. So you might take like a paragraph worth of a biblical text and a good biblical sermon was where the preacher would go line by line over the text. I see some nodding hands. That's good. And I know where the background's behind that, those nodding heads. And that was a Bible-based sermon. You know, I've, I've given many of these. Emily's given many of these. It's a fine form. I've heard lots of them. Um, but the idea that this is like the highest form of the sermon art is, it's, 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 Buhonky, to use a, a phrase I learned from Phyllis Tickle, <laughs> who lived in uh, Tennessee. So many sermons are actually recorded in the Bible, or portions of sermons, or written versions of sermons. 
And so far as I know, none follow this line-by-line commentary expository sermon approach. A, A much more common way to use Scripture within Scripture is to have a theme or a topic that the writer is addressing and then um, so usually it has something to do with what the local community is, is dealing with and their relationships with one another and the larger world they're part of. And then to string different texts from the Bible, um, from different parts of the Bible together. And this method was called stringing pearls. So it might be, you might call it like a topical sermon where various texts from scripture are scattered throughout the presentation. So it's, it's kind of like music. There's many ways to have beautiful music and there's many ways to have lame music and it's it's just the same with the sermon so that's thing one thing two thing two is better so this is this is a conviction i've developed about what's happening kind of in the spirit when a sermon is happening like when it's working working what is it that's working Look, I think of a good sermon as more like an event than it is like a, someone just speaking and you, the listener, listening. Um, so again, a little bit of background about how sermons started to be practiced is after the church was essentially co-opted by the Roman Empire, uh, the church buildings reflected the, the strong hierarchy of the Roman society. The Romans were known for their hierarchy they were known for their patriarchy and that was reflected in church architecture so the preacher would literally and if you've ever been to Europe or even in the United States some of the bigger cathedral churches they'll literally have a winding staircase that leads the preacher up to the up to the what's called the pulpit and you're like you're like tens of you know of of feet you know higher than the people listening and I've, I've a time or two I've spoken from a high pulpit like that and it's a it's kind of a head trip like whoa you know like ooh, I'm up here and they're down there there's a very subtle message in the architecture the subtle message is when I give the sermon I'm the boss of you <laughs> then you better you that's that condescending superiority tone that you know um, I think that mentality in other forms maybe not a pulpit you know, that is atop a winding staircase, but like a preacher entering from stage right in a, you know, big church with the trappings of celebrity kind of around it. That's, a, that's like a power move that's similar. Um, adopting the air of the expert. Like, I know all this stuff and I've got, I've got it and you don't have any access to this. And like the era of the expert in preaching is just over because everyone who's listening is two mouse clicks away from knowing whatever the speaker is saying at any given time. So if you're fast with your thumbs, you can be ahead of the speaker with your smartphone. So the expertise thing is kind of, kind of a joke. Or maybe the charismatic or Pentecostal preacher who's telling stories that feature himself. Usually it's himself uh, as the spiritual hero of the story. Um, this again, it's like a power move there. I I think instead a good sermon is an event in which the spirit is working in the mind and the heart of the listener as much as in the mind and the heart of the speaker. So I I kind of figured this out by trial and error. Someone would say, thanks, that that sermon really helped me today. Uh, God spoke to me. And at first, when I heard that, I was like, oh, 
oh, good, God really used me to deliver a message to the, to the person. That was the trial with the error part. Um, then I, I noticed when, when I would ask people or if they would volunteer, you know, what in particular spoke to you in the sermon, often um, their response was at best only tangentially related to anything I had actually said. Sometimes there, there was no like logical connection at all between what God said to them in the sermon and that moved them <laughs> so much and anything I said. Because I, I, I knew, I had, I, had the, I had the notes and everything. Um, and then it, it kind of dawned on me, oh, you know, I reflected on my own experience of listening to a sermon. When I listen to a sermon, um, there's like a multi-level dialogue going on in, in your mind. I'm hearing the words of the speaker, um, but his or her words are stimulating my own thoughts. And, and we're having like a conversation that's not heard, you know, between the speaker. And sometimes it's an interesting conversation in my head. And, and you're asking questions that, 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 you know, something the speaker says poses. And you're agreeing and you're disagreeing and you're musing. And it, in that semi-fluid, um, chaotic process, a kind of light goes on. And there's a thought or a feeling or an image or a, a kind of a light goes on and you're moved. And there's a, you undergo a perception shift. You see something from a different angle and it, it lifts you and gives you a new perspective. So it's not at all like there's a direct line from the speaker into my head and the speaker is delivering an inspired message like a... UPS driver might drop off an Amazon box on your porch. Um, it's actually in the act of listening to another human being who bears the image of God as we all do, my heart in the act of listening actually opens up to thoughts and perspectives uh, that are different than my own. C.S. Lewis says, you know, like... Um, the pagan who worships, you know, what would re be regarded as false gods is making a move toward God because at least they're not just paying attention to their own thoughts and they're, they're listening to the thoughts of, of another. And I think that process of listening to the thoughts of another is like a, it's a spiritual act, actually. It's a, the act of listening is a spiritual act because it's opening your mind or your heart to an other perspective and God is like the ultimate other. Um, and so that's like cracks a little you know, window where the, the fresh breeze of the spirit can, can blow in or cracks a opening in the door and, and the spirit can come in uh, to you and get a word in edgewise. So what that means is we can easily experience divine inspiration through a sermon or a portion of a sermon that we disagree with. Um, the, the speaker, you know, makes some remarks about a text and, and you think, I don't think that's what the text is saying. And, and, but that makes you wonder, well, what is the text saying? And then something dawns on you in that process that moves you and well, bingo, you came what you were, you, you got what you were looking for. Um, so the inspiration of the sermon is not at all limited to the words of a speaker. It's part of a process going on between the speaker and the 
listener and the spirit is like dancing around the room um, slipping through any cracks in the doors that we offer the spirit of any of our open minds so there's a a quirky line in the first letter of uh, John uh, chapter 2 and the line is this it's using a little bit archaic language for the spirit the anointing which you receive from him abides in you meaning the spirit lives in you the writer is saying to those reading and you have no need that anyone should teach you as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as it has taught you abide in him it doesn't say just as I have taught you abide in him he says just as it has taught you meaning it the spirit whose anointing you all have whose blessing you're all under who's you know ruminating rolling around in your consciousness so there's this weird tradition um, in the Jesus movement that no human being is to be regarded as a teacher to any other human being now Jesus somewhat famously said call no man rabbi call no man father I have a little joke with Julia my wife is an Episcopal priest that I can call her father because Jesus just said call no man father so, so but it's like call no man teacher which either means only women should um, teach uh, or it means um, you know don't regard another human being as your source of truth as, as your teacher in that sense because you have one teacher Jesus goes on in that little section you have one teacher you have one rabbi you have one master and that is God so he's bringing people he claims into a more direct or immediate experience of God or he's helping people to um, perceive what's going on in their head as possibly including the voice of of the divine so obviously I think this this um, thing in first John it wasn't taken literally I mean the author who wrote you have no need that anyone should teach you is technically teaching them that right <laughs> but there's a real thing that is being recognized in in that text something new is afoot is that was like the the excitement that was spreading through the um, early church like a virus in a daycare center it was like wow <laughs> something is spreading and something is new and something's afoot and it's what it is is like the possibility of a direct connection with the spirit like anyone can be like directly plugged into the spirit and that was so exciting that it was just like wow that was that's what really got the the early church um, going so the energy then that is related um, to a sermon happening in a room of people is running through a kind of triangle right so there's the person speaking there's the pe person listening and then there's the spirit who has equal access to the speaker and to the listener and I think understanding this if we like take this out of the realm of the implicit and bring it into the realm of the explicit um, understanding this I think it's designed to do, um, introduce a new level of freedom to the experience of a sermon in worship and I think one of the like 
like bad fruit signs of like bad preaching or maybe a bad understanding of preaching is when, when you feel like pressure in a sermon or you feel like there's a kind of constraint or a force or a power move going on and not a sense of freedom. Um, so here's a little application I'm going to just offer you. I'm sure this is exciting to you. I'm going to give you like in-house clergy talk among themselves these days. So if you get a group of clergy together from other churches or whatever, and, and you're having coffee and you're talking about, you know, your craft, your trade, inevitably, this is happening all over the country, probably all over the world. The question is, what are you doing about Trump? What are you doing about Trump? What are you saying uh, are you saying anything? Are you just avoiding the topic? How's it working out in your church? And, and when clergy generally are like having this conversation, believe me, they're having this conversation. <laughs> That's a bad imitation. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's anxiety ridden. It's just like the tone of it all is like <gasps> anxiety, like, oh, this is so touchy. Now, um, I'm speaking of white clergy having this conversation primarily because black clergy they've been dealing with this since the days of slavery and they're just talking about it and of course if you didn't talk about it it'd be like it wouldn't even be church I mean it's like come on it's not political it's personal um, but you know this is kind of newer for the uh, predominantly uh, white churches um, the anxiety comes I think from just ignoring this speaker, listening, listener, spirit with equal access to all triangle. So if, if the speaker, you know, someone in what I'm doing, thinks that it's his or her job to be the FedEx delivery person dropping off truth packages on every porch, well, like that's a lot of pressure. It's like a lot of pressure, and pressure usually creates anxiety, and it's usually like the kind of anxiety is like, oh man, I better get it right or I better not offend anyone or I'd like to, how do I like thread the needle and all that. And you can kind of tell when a, when a speaker is under that kind of pressure. It's like, oh, the poor, the poor devil. Um, now, if the listeners, on the other hand, are thinking, well, it's my job. I, what I'm supposed to do to be like a good participant in this is to take whatever package the delivery person drops off on the, my, my porch or my, my apartment. Well, that's pressure too. Like, what if I don't want it? What if I got too much stuff in my house or I don't need another like, thing in my knife drawer or whatever? Um, I think actually we intuitively get the, in, in, at Blue we intuitively get the triangle thing, um, that we all have equal access to the spirit. I mean, this is, in a sense, it's a part of the big message of our origin story. We went through a fire where that, that was something that we had to kind of hold on to or believe in. And so I think intuitively, at least, we listen to the person giving a sermon and that listening is a spiritual act and but the spiritual benefit of listening isn't just taking whatever the person says as like gospel truth but it's opening our minds to the spirit at work in the room and at work in our hearts um, so speaking and listening takes faith so I need to trust the spirit and this has really helped me relax about preaching you know I need to trust the spirit in me but even more I need to trust the spirit at work in you in the in the listeners or it's just too much pressure 
And, and as a listener, when I'm the listener, I need to trust the spirit at work in, in the speaker, but just as much, I need to trust the work of the spirit in me if I'm going to get anything out of it. You know, when, as a speaker, when the, when the spirit you know, moves me to speak, um, it doesn't re remove the me speaking, you understand. It's, it's through, always through, uh, human flesh and blood that God works and, God, and God, the idea that God works through flesh and blood means it goes through and the, the, the vessel like colors the, the message. So the me speaking even, you know, my most inspired is um, it's the me with my own story, my own background, my own experiences. But you as mature adults, you, you get that. And that, that helps the whole process work. Um, the spirit in each of us is the authority. So freedom, freedom. This brings freedom. Freedom of speech and then freedom of engaging speech. So we try to honor this re reality that I've just been talking about um, by the practice of quiet reflection at the end of every sermon. That this, this is the reflection of a value that we have in the church of the spirit being at work in everyone and the key skill is learning for each of us to tune in tune in that's like from the 1950s right you all remember like there was a dial on your radios and you had to tune it in but no what's the word um access do you uh, tune in oh, oh well but you're old Emily you're gonna be 40 pretty soon I mean you know come on get with it you're not even on um, uh, you're not even on Instagram I don't think Emily okay so you should all people should talk sometimes Emily thinks well, I'm the young one just because I'm like way older but I'm like hello you know anyway what's that oh oh okay I'm good. I'm still good. I've got generational relevance. Thank God. Oh my gosh. That's so good. Said, boy, that really lifted me. So um, for our quiet reflection, what I'd uh, suggest is I'm going to read the text um, from uh, John 1, uh, 1 John chapter 2, sorry, verse 27. I love this particular Bible I got recently. It's the Jewish annotated New Testament. And it's, um, the commentary is all by Jewish scholars who are not Jesus followers. And so it's, it's really fascinating. And sometimes it disagrees with the text or point of view. And it's like, oh, this is fun. But um, it's, the, it's the normal translation. And um, try to remember that this old language of anointing simply means the background to that is that the prophets would anoint someone with oil, say. Even pour oil on the head of a king. And that unction, that anointing would be like a sign of the, the Spirit of God entering the person, coming on the person, empowering the person for a particular task. And so that's the background to this term anointing. And what I'd suggest that you do is that this is presenting what for many of us is a new idea. For many of others of us who've heard it is not an idea that we've really internalized. This idea that we have the Spirit. The Spirit is in us. Um, God is a participant in our consciousness. And we can learn how to discern that voice 
And it's not something we have to strain. It's not, we don't have to become a different kind of person for that to happen. It's just, it's a reality. And so we need to relax into it. So when there's a new idea like that, one way to get hold of it is to just play with it for a little bit. You know, play with it. Like trying, trying on clothes at the, at the store. And you put them on, you look yourself. What does it look like? You turn around. If you don't like them, you take them off, you know, and you try on something else. So I'm, what I'm going to invite you to do during this maybe two minutes of silence is to let yourself play with the idea that this is an accurate description that you participate in, that you have this anointing as well. In fact, I think um, as we come up for communion, which will happen about 10 minutes from now, um, I asked Emily and Gretchen if they would mind standing up front here and anyone who wants to just receive a, an actual anointing of oil, I think we found some, some anointing oil. It'll just be like a ritual anointing, won't be Pentecostal anointing, which could take 10, 15, 20 minutes a person which would be fine. That would be fine to do. We're doing a different version. And it would just be uh, maybe making the sign of the cross or a dab of the oil and uh, saying something along the lines of, I recognize the spirit in you or the spirit is in you or the spirit is on you. Just some verbalization of that reality. Okay, so you're ready. You can get kind of relaxed and get into a comfortable position. And I'll read this text. Maybe I'll read it three times entire and you can take it on play with it for a while see what it would be like to enter into this understanding as for you the anointing that you received from God abides in you and so you do not need anyone to teach you but as God's anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, abide in God. it a second time as for you the anointing that you receive from God abides in you and so you don't need anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you abide in God As for you, the anointing that you receive from God abides in you, and so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in God. Amen.